Hey folks, welcome to Brett Weinstein's Dark Horse Podcast. I am sitting here today with Chloe Valdery, who is the architect behind Theory of Enchantment. Welcome, Chloe. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me, before we get into any of the other things that we want to discuss, what the Theory of Enchantment is? So Theory of Enchantment is a curriculum that I designed to teach mental health and healthy identity formation. But the uniqueness of the curriculum is that it uses pop culture to teach these things. So when you say identity, that's obviously a charged term these days. Are <laughs> sure. you talking about uh, racial, gender? Are you talking about these things or do you mean something else by it? No, I think I mean something actually uh, quite deeper than that, which is um, sort of like the fundamental humanness that we think of when we think of individuals. And so it's something that transcends all the categories that you just mentioned in some way. So it almost sounds like an alternative to this modern view of identity maybe i think i think that you know i don't think that uh race or gender or such categories can't also be discussed i think that this just provides us with a better framework or a better roadmap to point us in the right direction as we discuss those things cool um so maybe let's uh be bold okay and uh Actually, maybe I have to ask your permission to do this first. Okay. There's a way in which um, you as a person of African descent are living in a world in which race is playing such a prominent role that whether you want that to be an important part of the way you're interacting, it is on so many people's minds that you're dragged into a lot of conversations Mm -hmm. about it. And there's certainly a part of me that would love to just bypass it Entirely. Okay. okay. And then there's another part of me that thinks actually this is an opportunity. Sure. You and I, I think it's fair to say, are friends. Yes. And um, I feel very comfortable with you. I think you feel comfortable with me. Sure. And that means that in a sense we're really well positioned to have a conversation about things that other people aren't sure what to do with. Okay. That's so can you tell me a little bit about your background mm. um, and then – what you see on the modern landscape with respect to this topic that has become so charged? Sure. That's such a big question. It is. <laughs> Cosmic even. Um, I, so I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm African-American. Both of my parents are black. My grandparents are on both of my parents' side uh, are black. Um, I'm fairly certain that my parents' ancestors, uh, or at least by, I think my parents' Ancestors who were slaves were probably slaves in Shreveport because Shreveport, Louisiana, because I have a lot of friend uh, family uh, that still lives in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, but also, I think my father's side of the family goes back to Haiti, and that's the extent to which I know really about sort of immediate regional places that my family has come from. So, when you say goes back to Haiti, your father's family, you believe, was living in Haiti. Slowly, I believe enslaved so. In Haiti, presumably, I, I think so. Farming sugar or something along those lines. I don't. I don't know the specifics of that, but I think that they. I think that that was the particular place where they were most recently before coming to America. Got it. If that makes sense. Any idea um, what? part of Africa your family emerges from? So West Africa, but that actually doesn't really tell us anything because West Africa was where like the slave port was. So everyone was going through West Africa. But I mean, maybe it tells us something if it says like 80% from West, West Africa, maybe that means something. I'm not sure. But my sense is that it's hard to tell. So Louisiana, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, 
you were in Louisiana in uh, New Orleans during Katrina? Yes, I was 11 years old. You were 11 years old. Yeah. All but right. we had to leave for a year because the city shut down. Um, you know, there was, for a host of reasons, obviously the flooding and the shutting down of the city as well. But um, thankfully, my parents' house was not destroyed. And um, so we were able to go back after a year. But I was still gone all, for all of 11. And um, so your family was there. You were in yeah. uh, in Louisiana for the hurricane. Yeah. And so Orleans, you, yeah. Saw, uh, you saw in person what most of us saw on television. Um, well, yes and no. So I didn't see a lot of the more harrowing images that people saw on television just because – uh, so my grandmother was working at the VA hospital at the time, and we were housed there for about a week. And then everything just became unbearable because, like like I said, the city was shut down. So we got rescued on uh, military trucks, and they took us to Zephyr Stadium. Um, and then from there, they took us on buses where we went to Alexandria, Louisiana, where I stayed for a year. So I saw, I mean, it was kind of weird to be on a military truck, for example, and hear gunshots in the distance. Um but I also think that because I was 11, I don't really remember a lot of it. It's it's honestly a, a, a blur to a certain extent. But I do I do remember like um, some things obviously being out of the ordinary. But it wasn't as harrowing as other images of like you know people stranded out and people in the Superdome and sort of the troubles that they yeah. had as well. People dead in their wheelchairs exactly. outside of exactly. City Hall was it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was quite yeah. dramatic on the outside. Yeah. Now, of course, you were 11. Right. Uh, so there's also the added fact of having seen it through the eyes of a kid uh, yeah. at that point. Yeah. Um, I must tell you, I have a very clear, visceral memory okay. as Katrina unfolded. I was watching news coverage like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was a moment, I think it was George Bush himself, who mm -hmm. was announcing that the federal government was doing all it could, mm -hmm. but that it was having trouble getting its trucks uh, into the city to help people. And I had this visceral reaction. I was overwhelmed with anger because yeah. there's no way, even if the president had forgotten that yeah. the federal government had helicopters, right? Um, the federal government knew that it had them. Right. And so the fact that it was going to pretend that it couldn't help people sure. because the roads were in bad condition, it was clearly an excuse. Sure. So, you know, that uh, actually in, in light of what um, you do with Theory of Enchantment using <laughs> pop culture, it, uh, it is the first place that I became aware of Kanye West. And oh, wow. Famous. Yes. Uh, um, the legendary Assertion West. that yes. uh, George Bush did not care about black people. Sure. Which, um, I have to say, I don't think was exactly what was going on, right. but I did understand exactly why that was the impression because sure. whatever it was that he did and didn't care about, somehow helicopters that absolutely needed to arrive with help immediately were not arriving. Mm -hmm. And um, so there was some failure of empathy on a massive scale. Definitely. Um, but anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's actually kind of a, I think it's a, a national trauma that we all witnessed the failure of of our government at that moment. That's so interesting. It's interesting to be to have lived that as opposed to have been the viewer of that. And I wonder like the relationship that creates between 
the thing that is happening and the thing, the person it's happening to. Because, yeah, I don't know, maybe again because I was 11 and because I was in the middle of it as opposed to observing it, that that its scope at that point in time was lost on me because I was in the middle of it as opposed to observing it. Yeah, it's impossible to understand the magnitude of the context if you're in it and that's compounded by being a child at that point. My sense at the time, trying to understand what it was that had gone wrong, and Mm -hmm. I I have no idea whether I'm right about this or not, but I have the sense that um, there was a campaign. I mean, effectively, we know there was a campaign, and it came from the right. And that campaign was effectively designed to wean us off dependence on government, that the antipathy for government on the right was so great that uh, it essentially took that part of government which functioned Mm -hmm. and hobbled it so that we wouldn't get the sense that government was the solution to any problem. I see. And, you know, on the left, I would say there is an over uh, uh, dependence on governmental solutions often that have unintended consequences. So it's Mm -hmm. not like I'm saying the only fault here is on the right. But Mm -hmm. the the, uh, hobbling Mm -hmm. of the government was – in full swing at the point Katrina Mm. hit. I mean, it was almost at completion. And I had the sense that there was a desire not to have helicopters fly in and save the day because it would remind people that government actually stands between us and chaos Mm. and that it is necessary and useful. And you, Well, that's interesting because that brings up a contradiction of the right as you're saying that. Um, the last part, the last piece that you just said, right? Mm-hmm. Because presumably the right believes in, yes, they believe in small government, but they also believe in the governing of the self in order to um, thwart chaos. But it's interesting that that doesn't extend from the individual to the collective in the right wing's conscious sense of sense of you know consciousness or whatever, however you want to describe it, because. Consistency would suggest that if you believe that self-government is necessary to uh, thwart or to keep chaos back, then if you were to take that and apply it on a macro level, then governments are necessary also to thwart chaos, right? Interesting. And so that's an inherent sort of inconsistency. Now, when you say – Although I could probably steal, man, the – response to that but <laughs> yeah well i mean all of these things will be yeah. know, a balance and sure. any of them can be taken too far but sure. um when you say the governance of self yeah are you talking about basically self-restraint well i i just know that the right tends to talk about the importance of like uh you know self-regulation and not making sure not to be you know swept up by the passions and that's that's a that's Definitely mostly right-wing talk. Um, And so by self-governance, I just mean being in control of uh, one's faculty so as to not uh, descend into chaos, whether that chaos is decadence, whether that chaos is in excess of anything, right? Basically to always be in moderation. And by being in moderation requires governance. Yeah. And so if you don't extend that from the micro to the macro, then – you could it's it begs a question at the very least. Yeah, and uh, you know I think uh, wise people on the left and right can surely agree mm-hmm. that it is important, um, essentially, to self police at some right. level. Now, we we on the left might disagree with those on the right 
I don't mean to include you one way or the other. You, you <laughs> define yourself as you will. Sure. We on the left, meaning me and others sure. on the left, yeah. um, might have a different view of where the, the border of that responsibility is. Sure. But I think we could all agree that um, it is essential. And in fact, one of the things that I um, am most disturbed by that I see on the modern uh, radical left mm -hmm. is essentially a juvenile abdication of responsibility mm. to self-regulate, a desire, mm. you know, a, a sort of recognition, I want that thing mm. and therefore I am entitled to it um, rather than any notion that there are trade-offs and balances that have to be struck and sure. competing values and these sorts of things. Um, but anyway, I would love for the left and right to recognize the part of this viewpoint that they actually do share. Right. Unfortunately, I think that would require uh, giving up previously held positions that the other is a monster. <laughs> so you cannot find something of quality uh, in a monster. And, and even more so, you cannot admit that you find something in a monster which is similar to you because now you are identifying with the monster. So forever, yeah. for 15 years, I have been saying the following um, set of ideas. The Fox News viewer mm -hmm. believes that the New York Times reader is insane. The mm -hmm. New York Times reader believes yes. the Fox News viewer is crazy. They're both right. Yes. Okay? Yes. And <laughs> yes. Uh, there's something very powerful in what you said about it is impossible to find um, that point of agreement in the monster mm -hmm. on the other side. What I have trouble relating to, mm -hmm. because frankly, I don't see a monster on the other side generally. Okay. I occasionally see them. Okay. Those people exist, but sure. they're not common. Sure. Right? It's not like there's an entire right. movement. Uh, you know, It's not like half the population is right. awful. That's right. not true. So I have no trouble um, sitting with people who I'm told I shouldn't be able to get along with, sure. right? I'm told that I shouldn't be able to get along with creationists, for example. I don't find that sitting at the table with them is that way. I don't okay. find myself persuaded. Sure. But it's not hard sure. to grant them the benefit of the doubt and to discover their humanity. Mm -hmm. I don't find this problem with people on the right generally, even mm -hmm. though I'm far from the right. Mm -hmm. I don't get the sense that you have trouble seeing humanity on the other side. In fact, your whole uh, theory of enchantment <laughs> curriculum is built around the idea of really deeply understanding the humanity on the other side. Yes. So if you and I find this relatively easy to look across the aisle at people we're supposed to mm -hmm. not be able to fathom mm -hmm. and to actually find their humanity, is there something, A, is it much easier than people think? Is there just like a simple error that they're making? Or is it harder mm -hmm. than you and I find it because there's something about other people that stands in their way that just doesn't happen to be part of either of us? I actually think it is hard um, in general because of what it requires uh, one to it – re it requires one to like – shed preconceived notions and if one if one's identity is attached to preconceived ideas then and if you have to shed it then it sort of like feels it feels like a disaster you know if you identified with a certain set of beliefs that said you have to bash person x because 
they they have a different set of opinions than you and you heavily identify with that. Like that wasn't just a, an opinion you had. It was a part of who you are or who you conceived yourself to be. And now all of a sudden we're saying, actually, you can find common ground and you can find um, – you can even find affinity for this person. That is a total rejection of the thing that you thought was fundamentally a part of your very being. And that's hard to actually overcome, like living through that, wrestling with that and accepting that. So I want to know, are you saying you find it hard or are you saying that your experience with other people tells you that it's hard? I would say I don't find it hard anymore, but I used to find it hard. And so I can understand how on a psychological level it could be hard. Okay. And do you know what experience you had or what you realized that caused it to become easier? Oh, to become easier. That's an interesting question. I don't know if it was a I don't know if I could pinpoint it to a very specific thing or moment. I think it was a gradual Oh, well, actually, it entailed reading a couple books, honestly. <laughs> Uh, so East of Eden was probably one of the most important books I read uh, in my 20s, actually, that ma like enabled me to do that um, and to think in this way, so to speak. But other than that, I think it was just an organic process of wrestling with these ideas, which doesn't sound very satisfying. But <laughs> No, uh, first of all, I don't I – don't, it'd be wonderful if there was a simple answer. Yeah. If there was a simple answer, it would probably be more widely discussed, okay. although who knows. But <laughs> – Actually, yeah. So I think, I think the answer might be that I discovered that what we're talking about—the ability to uh, sit across from someone who you don't like or whose ideas you don't like—and still find affinity for them—that um, idea is actually found. I, I would argue we actually do believe in that, um, and and the proof that we believe in that is its presence in pop culture. So, like. The movies that we love, the Disney movies that we love, for example, is are often all about that, right? And they repeat themselves in, in Disney movies. Um, a lot of the artists' songs that we listen to, and I'm saying like a big cross-section of society, right? The types of artists that we gravitate toward oftentimes do talk about empathy in their music or do not even talk about it, but, but implicitly it's there, essentially. And so I think it was the realization that it is deeply embedded in what we desire to want to do at the very least because it's found in the pop culture that we create. And so this idea that uh, I initially thought was like a foreign idea um, became, became common in my eyes. And I think that that uh, realization and that organic sort of unfolding of the discovery of the meaning at the bottom of pop culture um, helped me to be able to more easily do that because then that that means that what we're describing is the fabric of stories found throughout art. And so then it becomes, then I have an entirely new relationship with that entire concept and that entire process. I, I really like that. And I realize in hearing you describe it, that mm -hmm. there are two things uh, in my experience that dovetail with what you're yeah. saying. One is I, I have a memory when I was, I don't know how young I would have been, maybe eight or nine. Okay. And uh, I think I was, you know, ranting about uh, the injustice of mm. what was happening to nature. I, okay. I, I've always had a very strong okay. affinity for nature and a fascination with it. And I've always had a, uh, a desire to, I like animals a lot and I like thinking about them and watching mm. them. And anyway, I was 
ranting about um, maybe I was ranting about hunting. Okay. And Eric, you mm-hmm. know, three and a half years older than me, mm-hmm. uh, said, you know, you really need to read Field and Stream. Okay. Right? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you really need to understand what it is mm-hmm. on the other side. You need to understand how they see the world. Mm. And, um, you know, uh, it's a little hard to admit how profound an impact that had on my life because okay. at some level I now recognize myself as a 50-year-old adult who delights mm-hmm. in being able to cross unbridgeable gaps, okay. right? It's like, sure. you know, there's a way, I think it's very honorable work and I don't mm-hmm. in any way uh, feel cynical about it, but there's a way in which it does strike me as a challenge. When I hear there's a gap I'm not supposed to be able to cross, I always okay. want to figure out whether I can yeah. convey something to the person on the other side sure. about my humanity that will cause them to suddenly wake up and right. vice versa. Right. The other thing though is I'm watching a world develop online that obviously okay. didn't exist sure. when I was a young person. Um, you know, you're you're young enough that it has existed for most of mm-hmm. your adult life or maybe mm-hmm. all of your adult life. But I'm watching something happen with, for example, the videos that people post of their pets. Okay. And so there's sort of a culture of people posting things about, you know, surprising things that cats do or dogs do. And there's a kind of a language that develops around the recognition of, you know, there's this sort of, I'm going to botch it, but, you know, this good boy kind of thing for when a dog does something really impressive. And I'm watching and I'm noticing that, you know, people are talking about these things on Reddit or wherever. And they don't know whether they are on the same side of the political aisle. Right. Right. They don't know anything about each other. Yeah. But the fact that, you know, yeah. it might be that I have a hard time seeing you. Right. But if you and I are looking at that dog, right. the fact is our human relationship with dogs is universal enough right. that we can actually come together around it. And so, yeah, I had that same exact similar experience with DJing. Because when I first moved to New York, I discovered New York and <laughs> discovered. When was this? This was in 2015. Okay. I discovered Brooklyn. And, you know, uh, some of my friends took me out to these crazy parties in Brooklyn to see these awesome DJs who are super talented. And I've always been fascinated with this uh, um, this thing that happens at concerts where people are willing to stand as close as possible to the other person that they don't know in order to get as close as possible to the stage. Mm. And so, like, what is it about that particular landscape that that allows people to – let themselves be vulnerable, essentially, um, but to also – it's a different style or a different kind of connection that occurs in that type of landscape. And the same is true for the dance floor and when you have a good DJ. So what is it – because, because you know, two people dancing together who have just met each other on the dance floor could have two totally different political viewpoints, right? Or t- could see – not even just politics, but could see the world fundamentally in, a to- in totally different ways. And yet what is going on at dance floor – uh, is is powerful enough to have the people there not care, or that's not even the they understand that that is not the meaning of life, or that's not the essence of life in that moment, and even if it's just for a moment, 
they understand that whether or not they share the same political opinions is not really what is meaningful in that moment, right? So that would never really be a thing to come up, or it would. It certainly wouldn't be the first thing to come up. It would be this uh, this attempt at connection, period. And so, what is it about the generation of the music happening with the DJ that conjures that? And how can you take that, bottle that, and then put it into a uh, landscape like Twitter, for example? Or is it even possible to do that? All right. That's quite amazing. (laughs) So I think you're being even a little cautious in terms of what you're proposing about two people on a dance floor. Because if I I model this based on my experience of people, Mm -hmm. if two people met in the circumstance you're talking about and they found themselves on a dance floor together and they danced well together, which has a whole (laughs) deep meaning to it, whatever that meaning is. I'm convinced we haven't unpacked it enough. Okay. Let's say two people experience, they, they, they groove well together, sure. right? And then they discover that they do have some differences, difference yeah. in opinion that is supposed to be unbreachable. Right. It totally changes the nature that they view that difference, and how they view that difference. It heavily, yeah. not only does it predispose them to find, you know, because they have connected in this sort of mysterious, mystical way that right. dancing involves. Right. They then a know that there is something. Right. That person is right. not the monster. Because you're the connected side. to them. You're already connected so, in some deep way. Yeah. So you could find your way back there. Yeah. And you have an incentive to figure out. Well, surely that thing that we differ over can't right, right, be the right. sum total of it because right. then it negates whatever was implied by the dance. Right. And it also it has to be because otherwise it would indict you. Right. right. It would mean that oh you would, it would mean that you had danced with the enemy. Right. right. It would mean that some that the enemy shared some aspect of you in, right. or had some aspect of you in them and vice versa. Oh, I love this. So, I, I think this is... This it's is, something, right? It's, it's very, very deep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's marvelous. Yeah. So how do we get it to Twitter? <laughs> well, so um, I, this is a weird week for us to be talking about this okay. because my <laughs> life on Twitter, which has uh, for years been... been a terrible match for what people say Mm. about the bitterness and rancor and inability to discuss things over years. Heather and I have both had the experience of finding most of Twitter pretty respectful of us, Mm -hmm. pretty ready to listen, ready to, you know, admit error when they say something intemperate and then, you know, this week that's turned on me. Okay. (laughs) Um, As a result, I think uh, mostly or entirely of my uh, going too far in challenging ah. w- what I uh, called new atheists, mm-hmm. not realizing that that was a uh, heavily charged term. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in any case, this is a rough week for me on Twitter. But um, but in general, yeah. I do think we all see a different Twitter and we don't necessarily know it because there's only one name for it. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. when people talk about, you know, how terrible Twitter is for discussion, I know they're not having my experience. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> right. So how do we get it there? In part, we've got a an antagonist we don't know because we don't know what role the ag- algorithms are playing in sure. which Twitter we see. Okay. Um, but I think um, there's something about – my experience has been that figuring out how to bridge gaps you're not supposed to be able to bridge is actually kind of addictive. And I, I, I regard it as oh, a positive addiction. Okay. Right? It's like being yeah. addicted to making music or something right. like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so in, in some sense, I think the answer to your question must be 
that if you can just simply get people where they have the experience Mm -hmm. of making a connection with somebody they're not supposed to like and that connection being rewarding, then Mm -hmm. it's almost self-catalyzing. I see. Do you think that has to happen in real life though and not on online? Because like I would I it's actually I would argue it would have to happen in real life otherwise it doesn't work. I think like, it has to psychologically tra- it has to translate to real life. It has to translate to real life. Okay. But it could happen on Twitter first. Okay. Um Yeah. So maybe like seeing a video where that happened and then it triggered some emotion in them that was very pleasing. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there are these videos. I've forgotten the gentleman's name, but this uh, black guy who decided to go and talk to Klan members. Oh, Daryl Davis? Daryl Davis. Yeah. Yeah, I mean— We teach him the theory of enchantment curriculum. <laughs> makes perfect sense if yeah. you would. So I must say, on, on the one hand, I totally relate to what he's up to. It's like, yeah. you know, that thing I was talking about where it's yeah. like I feel the challenge. Yeah. I can imagine that he, felt, he feels that, yeah. He feels that challenge. Um. You know, he's obviously extremely bold to do it right. in the way that he does. But I think there's a way in which for almost all of us, yeah. you got to be really cold yeah. not to look at what he's done and feel like a warm sense of shared humanity sure. over what he's able to do. And in fact, even just seeing him on screen mm-hmm. with former clan members yeah. who he's brought to their senses is, uh, you know, it's, it's a feel-good story for the ages. Definitely. So – um, it's got to be modeled. Okay. Little experiences have to be available to people. Sure. Um, you know, and it's got to be small enough steps that they can get there. But the key message, I think, for all of us who are good at crossing gaps, mm-hmm. is that in the end, it's a it's a richer experience of yeah. life. So yeah, I think that that is true. I think that 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 last bit is definitely. Uh, it has to be the objective and it has to be um, the goal that we measure like this process that we're talking about creating, um, whether it's successful or not. Uh, but it, t- it turns out that like, I don't know if it's possible to have uh, deep enriching moments be translated on social media because the nature of deep enriching moments or deep, a deep enriching feeling is such that I don't think it could happen on a, in the landscape, like so, like it requires real life, real world, experiential, uh, that type of process in order for that to happen. Well, I hate to go all fractal on you. Oh, um, I, I I've tend- lost the argument. <laughs> <laughs> this no, is the moment. No, you haven't. Um, <laughs> here's the thing. Yeah. We are engaged in a conversation. Sure. And, you know, there's some people who aren't going to like it, but yeah. most people will. <laughs> yeah. um, most people who are. We should give them a shout out, though, just to tell them that we still have empathy for them and we care about them. Yes. <laughs> they're, they're welcome back anytime they yeah. come to their senses. Yes. Um, but the thing is, we're doing this. Sure. And. Um, it, we're, you know, there's a reason that we're doing this long form rather than right. short form, but this will go on social media. Right, you're right. And yeah. my guess is that some number of people mm-hmm. will, even if they can't put their finger on what it is that they've experienced, they will right. hear you and me talking and they will understand. I mean, sure. you know, my experience at Evergreen was that a lot of people needed to hear somebody say what they couldn't. Right. And Sorry. having heard it. Is fractal a synonym for meta? No. (laughs) Let's put it this way. In a very loose sense, you could use it that way. But fractal means 
that uh, some process is scale independent. And okay. so the point is you see the, you see the <laughs> okay. same process at sure. many different scales. Okay. Right? So, for example, the example I've heard people use that's simplest is if you were descending on the lunar lander onto the surface of the moon mm -hmm. and you saw a crater, you couldn't tell how far away from the moon you were because there are craters at every size. Okay. And so right, right. You know, the distribution of the craters is okay. fractal. So all I'm saying is that the – um, the process that happens inside of, you know, a particularly delightful exchange sure. of one sentence also happens at the level of a, an hour or two hour sure. conversation okay. at the level of a, That's fair. You know, a college class. Actually, or, yes, that makes sense. My entire startup is premised upon this working because it argues that you can uh, sort of um, – you can – gain those deep enriching moments by consuming pop culture, which usually happens through a medium and not necessarily in in person, meaning you go to the movie theater to watch a movie and you experience this. You read a book and you experience this. You listen to a song and you experience this. So there is some medium that people are consuming and they're still feeling that larger experience. So I guess that makes sense. Yeah. So I think we're caught in a funny place okay. with pop culture. Okay. Um, and I realize, you know, you're using pop culture to great effect. Mm -hmm. And even if most of pop culture were worthless, yeah. it wouldn't mean that there wasn't enough of value to be mined there to yeah. spend a lifetime doing what you're doing. So there's no indictment here from me of what mm -hmm. you're up to. Mm -hmm. But I do have the sense that pop culture works for what you're doing because we are wired for mm. certain mm. Truths, and therefore, Definitely. when those truths are uttered by somebody appealing in the public sphere, mm -hmm. lots of people gravitate to it. Definitely. So it generates wealth, yes. and that causes it to be broadcast. Right. Yes. So there's a way in which the resonant messages, you know, the record companies are a parasite on the exchange of relevant messages right. between right. people who feel them and those who are listening. Right. Um, on the other hand, the market obviously distorts that relationship too. It'll okay. tell you what you want to hear rather than what you need to know. Sure. And that's very dangerous. Sure. Um, so for the moment, I don't know where we are, but it, you know, it's it's so far it is impossible to get a computer to generate really compelling. Mm -hmm. uh, it can probably generate music that mirrors something that's already been sure. produced, but it's hard for it to produce something creative novel and compelling at least at the level of lyrics so it would generate what's on the top 100 today <laughs> right it would generate some slightly novel <laughs> it would sound version exactly of, like because of the state of the top 100 today yeah rather than somebody so telling wonderful. you something deep right um but you know so let's let's take a, a favorite example for people of my generation okay uh the matrix okay, okay? yeah <laughs> perfect for this conversation perfect for this conversation <laughs> well the matrix is in effect Plato's cave. Yes. Right? It's a very ancient yes. story. You know? It's Plato's yes. cave. It's Plato's cave. Right. And it was wildly successful because the production values were super high and mm. the story was compelling and the modern twist wasn't superficial. Sure. Um, so in the sense, you know, a lot of people who had no relationship to Plato's cave wouldn't know what Plato's cave was right. or people who did know what it was but didn't have a particularly deep relationship with the story sure. suddenly had that story re-upped in sure. their experience by this very vivid, you know, presentation of it. Sure. And that's really important. I mean, mm -hmm. I personally feel like Plato's cave is 
a very deep story because mm -hmm. this is a very deep vulnerability for human beings. Mm. The fact that, you know, the the person who escapes Plato's cave gets killed upon re-entering and trying to mm. tell the truth. Wow, does that one hit home? Yeah. What are the implications of that in your opinion? Well, the implications <laughs> of that are A, the idea that you can simply speak truth to power or mm -hmm. that the truth will out or any of these things mm. is it's a naive fiction and okay. that those who wish to unearth deep truths should understand what business they've gotten involved in. Okay. Interesting. But anyway, I've, I've sidetracked us here. That's okay. This is all sidetracking. It's great though. We can find our way that way. Um, <laughs> um, no, but that's interesting. I'm trying to see if I could see what you're saying. I could also see the opposite though being the case. I'm, I'm sure it is sometimes, but yeah. anyway, meaning, the, well, when I think about what you said, I think about, you know, the challenge to Dr. King quoting William Cullen Bryant's, like the dark, what's, what's the quote? The, about the universe? Oh, the arc of the moral universe yes. is long, but it bends towards justice. Yes. So, so what you just said is a great challenge to that quote. Right. And so, um, and I, that might be fair. It might not be. No, no. no. I really like this. It, <laughs> It is a challenge. Yeah. And yeah. I think the sophisticated version ultimately is that these are competing forces. Sure. And what, what very Dr. Star Wars-y. Yep. Well, right. very Star Wars-y, which is very <laughs> biblical in yeah, its own yeah, yeah. way. And, yeah. um, but the, I think the, the point about the devastating thing about yes. Martin Luther King Jr.'s invocation of the arc of the moral universe yes. is the first part. That is the long. arc of the moral is universe long. is long. And yes. what he's telling you is you might have to wait a very long time yeah. to see it bend towards justice. Yes. That's a that's a devastating revelation. Yes. Well, I don't know if it's devastating. I, I'd say it's daunting. I wouldn't necessarily use the word devastating. I think it's devastating to an individual because the point is you sure. can live in an era that's just brutal and that sure. doesn't – there's no comfort as an individual to the right. idea that eventually what was done things will get will better be fixed. Right. Um, on the other hand, at the lineage level, that's vitally right. important, and it is reassuring to know that even if you never escape a particular injustice, that your kids or your grandkids might see it reversed. Right, but they might not, according to your interpretation of the implication of Plato's cave. So, <laughs> well, I, let's put it this way: I know Plato's cave is right. I've seen that okay. one. Um, I hope Dr. King was right. Yes. And that in the end, Plato's Cave doesn't win. Okay. Right? That sure. In the end, the revelation of what's outside the cave right. can't be stopped because it is in fact true. But but to be fair, uh, Plato's Cave ends at a certain point, meaning we don't see what happens afterwards. It could have very well have been that this person could have affected. Let's hypoth be hypothetical for a moment. Some people outside of that cave who saw his great courage and valor and decided to follow suit. Absolutely. Right? So it's interesting like to, to note where the book ends um, and what the implication of that is on society. I would say that I do think that um, I do think that Dr. King's vision would ultimately win out though just because the very fact that Plato wrote that book would suggest a toying with the notion of 
these concepts of freedom and liberty and equality and speaking truth to power. Like in writing that, he is writing a book about speaking truth to power, even if the person fails in the end. It's the very idea of speaking truth to power that becomes invented in that moment. And that in and of itself is bending toward justice. Well, I, I agree. And <laughs> I not only uh, hope that Dr. King was right, yeah, but at some level... If he's not right, I don't know what there is. I, mean, I just don't know what the point of the right. exercise is anymore. Right. right. Yeah. If he is right, then the point is, well, all right, we all get dealt a hand and we have to play it. Sure. And some of them are better than others. But um, but at least we're headed in a direction of improvement. Yes. So yes. actually, if I might, I, uh, my, my grandfather was quite old in his uh, – in his 80s, okay. we started uh, keeping accounts current. Okay. Meant that he was very clear on the fact that he wasn't going to live forever and that mm -hmm. that meant that we should probably say what needed to be said mm. before it was too late. Sure. Which was very uncomfortable at first and then it became very normal and I recommend it to everyone. Okay. If there's somebody you care about. Yeah. Um, because they won't be around forever. But at some point I asked him, he had, in my whole experience of him, he had railed against the injustices of the system and the brokenness, mm. all of the things that we did wrong that were relatively transparent. Mm -hmm. And I asked him if there was a period in time that he would like to go back to in his life rather than live in the present, given how much he saw was wrong with it. And he surprised me. He said, absolutely not. Yeah. And I said, I I'm shocked. You complain <laughs> so much about the way things are. Yeah. And he says, you have no idea about the profound ignorance of the past, mm. right? And I was just, you know, I stopped in my tracks because right. I hadn't really understood. You know, he was impatient for things to get better. Right. That's what the complaining was about. Sure. But he had no illusions about where we had come from right. and that enlightenment was frustratingly slow and it moves in fits and starts. It can even go backwards. But in general, mm -hmm. we are much clearer headed than we were. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of uh, Dr. King's last speech where he says sort of in a very like gospel-y way, he basically paints this picture of uh, his creator asking him um, if he could choose to be in any – uh, era, where would it be? And then he goes through sort of like this, these biblical narratives of, of like the children in Israel and he would not stop there. And um, I think he actually mentions Plato and Socrates and he said, I would not stop there. And he goes through Athens and he goes through Greece and he goes through, um, I think, certain times in America's early history. And then he finally says that he would pick the here and now to be in. And it's like actually a very beautiful speech. And if your viewers haven't seen it, I highly recommend they do. But yeah, it's like – and if you know – if you don't have any ignorance of the past, then you're more likely to be able to recognize that you actually have made progress, like relatively speaking, right? And so so yeah, you'll be impatient, but you, you'll probably be more imbued with that same spirit of it's long, but it's obviously bending because <laughs> look where we were before. Yep. You know? uh, I, I think that's absolutely right and I, I almost wonder in your – retelling that if my grandfather was not in some way referenced mm. consciously or not. Yeah. You're right. It's yeah, the same, yeah, yeah. It's the same point. Um, That's cool. Yeah. So I, I must say I personally fear that although I think Dr. King was right mm -hmm. and um, it gives me hope, I fear that there's a pattern in human behavior. I've written about it actually okay. scientifically many years ago, but uh, I fear that there's a 
basically a flip-flop okay. between how human beings behave in times of growth, times of plenty, yeah. and how human beings behave in times of contraction, okay. economic contraction or its equivalent. Okay. And that in fact, the arc of history or the arc of the moral universe may be long and bend towards justice, uh -huh. but that it actually flips back and forth rather violently. Uh, okay. And um, this actually raises another uh, interest of yours, which will okay. surprise my viewers who don't know you and okay. will not surprise those who have heard you speak elsewhere. But you have a very deep relationship with Judaism. Yes. Uh, and yes. anti-Semitism. Yes. Um, and anyway. Fighting it, folks. Fighting yes, it. absolutely. Oh, right. Was I unclear about that? Oh, man, that's terrible. Um, yeah. So why don't you just tell us where that relationship comes from and what okay. it means to you, and then we can go for there, and I'll try okay. to draw the connection I was headed for. Sure. So I was born and raised in a very atypical Christian family, grew up in a Christian family that observed things like uh, Shabbat and kosher style and all the holy days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, uh, very similar to Seven Day Venice. Um, but that naturally allowed the development or created the development of an affinity for Judaism because that was the closest community that did the same thing as me, basically. And so, um, you know, in high school, I joined the Hebrew Culture Club. I read books by Leon Uris, which were all about the reestablishment of the state of Israel. Um, initially majored in film in college, but then switched to international studies because anti-Semitism was resurfacing in Europe at the time. This was in like 2012. And then after that, I started a student pro-Israel club at the University of New Orleans and did Israel advocacy for three and a half years. And then after that, worked for two years in the Israel space, in the Israel nonprofit space. Interesting. So, uh, so many things. <laughs> yeah, uh, far be it for me to define you in any way, but sure. let me just try to understand. Okay. You're not Jewish. No. But you have uh, a deep cultural affinity for. Is what is it? Is it is it the Jewish religion? Is it I don't know. It's, Jewish it's, people or it's what? It's kind of all of it, you know. I don't know if a catch-all term, but I guess it's culture. I guess culture is a word that would carry all of that or could hold all of those terms. So I'd say culture. Okay. But very broadly speaking. Very broadly speaking. Yeah. Okay. Well, I find this fascinating. I, I have, I'm obviously uh, Jewish. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a particularly deep relationship with the religion. Mm -hmm. I have uh, I, what I think is a very deep relationship with the culture of the diaspora. Okay. Um, but anyway, you know, I, I'm not I'm not observant. Sure. Um, and so anyway, I have I have a kind of distance from Judaism that okay. uh, happened. I didn't choose it. It just okay. sort of is where I ended up. But it's very interesting to hear somebody from the outside mm -hmm. of the population mm -hmm. who finds an affinity for the style of thinking or sure. something about it. And it, you know, it raises all kinds of questions for me about um, – well – the connection I was going to draw that mm -hmm. sent us down this road was Jews are a kind of an odd phenomenon. Okay. We tend to exist at low density. Okay. You know, in a diaspora. Sure. If you asked me as an evolutionary biologist, how likely is that to work as a long-term mm. strategy for persisting on earth? I would say the chances are almost zero. Okay. Right. It's too dangerous. Sure. Right. The fact is having a majority population that can always turn on you sure. is um, a 
it's a tremendous hazard that sure. looms always. And the boom and bust cycle issue that I was talking about, mm. basically, I think – Like in plenty and in scarcity. Right. The society. In yeah. plenty, it may be that Jews are tolerated, but as things yeah. uh, turn towards austerity – anti-Semitism rises again. And mm -hmm. the amazing thing is that Jews have persisted for mm -hmm. the long period of time that they have. And I think these that fact mm -hmm. and the high level of success that Jews have experienced in things like advancing science, et cetera, sure. I suspect they are coupled. Okay. That in effect, um, Jews, uh, I hate the idea of a chosen people. Okay. I think it's time that humans got over that idea. Sure. Um, but they won't ever. Do. <laughs> just for your, just so your viewers know. No, no, that won't happen. But. The arc of the moral universe <laughs> is long. Um, but I don't like the idea of chosen people because okay. uh, I find it there's something wrong with the idea that if there was a creator that mm -hmm. he created some people he didn't choose. I just don't. Well, I don't buy that. I, I understand your objection to it in the from the literal <laughs> sense. Yeah. But if you were to look at it, perhaps on a deeper psychological level, it could be the case that it's important to have a chosen people because then other people will think that it is possible that they too could be chosen. Well, first of all, I should just say <laughs> I, I'm not a I'm not a believer in the supernatural. Sure. So, in a sure. sense, even thinking about it as a literal matter, uh, I don't even know what to do with it. Okay. But. My my sense is that we are better off considering uh, this is probably also uncomfortable because declaring anything about any racial group sure. special, sure. Uh, especially if it's one you belong to, sure, uh, that can have some problems. Smacks of arrogance or hubris right. or something. But anyway, my point would be maybe not the chosen people, but maybe the anti fragile people. And that means okay. that basically the amount of uh, hazard per uh, era mm -hmm. that Jews have faced has created a kind of um, ability to survive in all kinds of extreme circumstances. What has okay. not killed us has made us stronger in a way. Now, personally, yes. I suspect that what is – special mm -hmm. is transmitted culturally. Sure. And therefore, to the extent it is valuable, it can be democratized. Sure. I don't know if that's right, but... Um, okay. <laughs> I, oh, okay. I thought I mean, you were... Yeah. I don't know. Okay. I, as far as I know, uh, it's... Wait, what was the last thing you said? To the extent that it is culture, it can be democratized. Yeah. Right. Why? Let's put it this way. If it, if it was genetic, right? Right. If the fact of... Uh, many trials and tribulations had created special genes. Sure. There'd be nothing you could do about it other than I see. breed them out. I or, see. I mean, breed them out into the other population. But that doesn't necessarily mean that culture can be democratized. Well, just, culture can be democratized. Just because. And in fact, you're the proof. No, but I'm an anomaly. Well, you're an anomaly <laughs> and you, we're, this is a totally uncontrolled experiment in sure. the sense that, you know, there's nothing. There's nothing about this that is controlled. Every, sure. Everybody is idiosyncratic, sure. including you. But the point is, you Judaism is not a recruiting religion. Right. It does not seek converts. Right. Right. Um, in fact, it sort of looks askance at people sure. who wish to join. Sure. But it allows it. Yes. Um, and 
you mm-hmm. have taken an interest in the culture yes and have absorbed the meaning of that culture yes. very deeply sure right so that's that's the meaning of democratizing of culture i guess i don't know if the process by which that happened is really scalable well i'm not really like as a hypothetical so as a college professor yeah. when i was a college professor i took the stuff that I had learned Mm -hmm. at the dinner table about how to argue a point, Mm -hmm. how to hold other people's feet to the fire, Mm -hmm. how to back off when Mm -hmm. you've discovered that something about your thinking is incorrect, how to gracefully, you know, grant uh, that fact. Um, And I taught students Mm -hmm. to do it irrespective of their background. Sure. Some part of me felt like I was taking things that were very common at a Jewish dinner table and introducing them into the classroom. And my point, I guess, would be the unusual level of success that Jews have experienced in certain quadrants Mm -hmm. um, to the extent that it is culturally transmitted, which may be all of it. Okay. um, I, I find it hard to imagine any of it is not readily learnable. Mm. That's interesting. I don't know. I wonder what that would look like. What that process would look like. Well, um, On a mass scale. I've said this elsewhere at least once. I don't remember where exactly. But the, I think the other proof of this is the Enlightenment. Okay. Which was not a Jewish project. Sure. But Jews, myself included, have taken those tools and wielded them very effectively. Right. And at some level, I feel like um, the Enlightenment mm-hmm. was an achievement. It was a human achievement. Mm-hmm. It belongs to everybody. Sure. Right? And this is one of the things that breaks my heart about the intersectional movement in mm-hmm. the present is the rejection of the Enlightenment, which they sure. will flat, flatly tell you they want to see, that sure. the Enlightenment is somehow biased and white and right. needs to be uh, – tossed out. Right. Um, well, my feeling is no. Actually, what it needs to be done, what needs to be done with it is it needs to be taught so everybody has access to those tools. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're not, you're not going to beat the scientific method, which is a, right. not directly <laughs> yeah. uh, the Enlightenment, but it's a product of the Enlightenment. Sure. Um, so in any case, the democratizing of those tools that are acquired through some sort of history seems to me the right answer. Okay. I think that perhaps the intersectional left's uh, objection to the Enlightenment is proof that at the very least such a democratization process could be um, hindered later on because because if they're rejecting the Enlightenment, which was democratized to a certain extent, um, then, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just a back and forth, a cyclical tension that always keeps happening for some reason. (laughs) Well – if we were to steel man their point. Oh, yes, please do. Um, <laughs> I do think that there's a way in which the attempt or the attempts to mm-hmm. democratize the benefits of, for example, the Enlightenment have stalled. Okay. And so I think, you know, look, I think a lot of the people who are leading the intersectional movement are actually cynical actors serving themselves. But I don't think the average person in the movement is cynical. I think the average person in the movement has been misled. Um, 
but the the idea that something has not worked about democratization of these concepts and tools, I'm all ears. The extent to which these tools are themselves sure uh, problematic, problematic, I find impossible to imagine given how well they work and given that their central value, I mean, the, the central value of the scientific method mm -hmm. is that it corrects for bias. Right. Sure. Um, no, I think that's I think that's all true. Uh, well, uh, are you planning on conducting an experiment to see if Judaism can be <laughs> democratized, as it were? I mean, culturally, uh, I I don't know how to <laughs> say this without seeming like a weirdo, but okay. I sort of think that we're engaged in that experiment oh. <laughs> right here. And oh, mean, that's what we're figuring out right now. I don't think it's just me at this moment. I okay. think it's you and me. Okay. Um. I was in it's like it's like the matrix when you wake up and you realize what's going on. Right. Uh, well, that was <laughs> well, But I mean, I, I, you know, I, But I don't know if it's a conscious thing. It's like <laughs> Nope. Might not be. And it might be a it might be a foolish thing to even say out loud. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, but I wouldn't go that far, but <laughs> but um yeah, I don't I don't know the implications. I don't know if I need to know the implications of what that would mean, but it's a cool thing to think about, I guess. Well, is the – maybe let me rephrase the okay. point this way and try okay. it out on you. Okay. Um, the Greeks yeah. discovered a very power, powerful toolkit for thought, okay. for mathematical proof, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It was a discovery of the Greeks, but it doesn't belong to the Greeks, sure. right? Everybody gets to use trig. Sure. Um, the uh, Galileo mm -hmm. obviously innovated uh, a perspective that allowed us to understand um, things about our physical universe and our mm -hmm. place in it yes. that uh, are not his property, not the property of sure. his people, but they are human achievements. Okay. When Americans landed on the moon in mm -hmm. 1969, Americans may have viewed it as an American achievement and it was. Sure. But there's also a way in which people all over the world viewed it as a human achievement and it was. Sure. Right? I feel like I know where this is going. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, it is going and it is it is it is inherently there, but the okay. basic point is look, Stuff is going to get discovered by sure. some population first. It's sure. just inevitable that it will. And some stuff is going to get discovered in many places that aren't in con contact with each other. I mean, farming sure. was discovered five different places at right. least right. Um, across the planet. Uh, does that mean that people who don't come from a population that discovered how to farm are not entitled to do it? Of course not. Right. Um, so anyway, the question is, uh, is not – the most noble viewpoint on how we are to move forward as a species mm -hmm. that wherever valuable stuff is discovered, mm -hmm. um, the insights belong to all of us. You don't discover on behalf of your population. You discover on behalf of uh, enlightenment. So I think that's a great question, by the way. Well done. Thank really you. good question. So I think – that it's the answer is both, and this is a paradox. So 
But I think the answer can be that both, um, in one sense, when you discover something, it's on behalf of humanity, but also, um, and yes, they are the, uh, how did you put it? They are the, they belong to everyone, and like anyone can practice trigonometry, right? Um, so I think that's true. But I think it's also true that human beings need and are wired for story. And so from that perspective, the idea of having a story which sort of maps out a direction that gives meaning to your life is also itself necessary for human development. So it's necessary for human development to be able to say we can all use trigonometry, but it's also necessary for human development to have the particular story, whether we're talking about in the form of Judaism or um, I'm just saying story in general is necessary for the, for the human psyche, I think, because that's what we're wired for. So we're measuring two different uh, values, essentially, in this conversation. One value is the value of like um, the value of the collective. And this is actually a very Jewish thing to say, but one value is the value of the collective and one value is the value of the individual. And so the question is, how do you balance those two things? Uh, because both of them are necessary um, in terms of how we shape the stories that we tell our lives. It is incredibly moving to think about, you know, uh, the landing on the moon being uh, an achievement for all of humanity and sort of like a, a, one, a feeling of oneness with all, of, with all human beings. On the other hand, we, we do know that it is very hard to conceptualize a, a, a statistic of multiple people dying as opposed to one individual dying. Right, and so we are wired as such that we need uh, we need the cosmic, but we also need the particular. We need the universal, but we also need the particular. And the challenge is how to how to balance both of those things um, in a healthy way. Beautiful. Um, now here's the question that I suspect haunts this analysis. Okay. Which is, yep, you got the individual. Yeah. You've got the collective, but which collective? Okay. And so what I see after decades of study mm -hmm. of history, evolution, human nature, mm -hmm. what I see is a tragic story in which we are built to cooperate, mm -hmm. to compete. Okay. We cooperate to compete. That's what we, we do. We cooperate in order to compete. We cooperate in order to compete. Okay. And in and of itself, that is not inherently bad. It results in all sorts of marvelous things. Sure. But it is the, the seed of our undoing mm -hmm. is in that formula because we have gotten more and more powerful mm -hmm. in that process. And the ability to play that competition to a fatal end mm is looming sure. nearby. Because of technology. Because of technology, because of the size of the population and because of the interconnectedness okay. with which we live. Okay. Um, and the question is, there's been a process in which the collective has been broadened historically. So okay. if we think, for example, of uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. Yeah. Um, the golden rule, which evolves in multiple traditions. Sure. Uh, there's a Hillel version, there's mm -hmm. a Jesus version. But um, these stories create a context for broadening the circle with sure. whom you collaborate. Sure. Why? In order to compete with something outside of it. Okay. But we are now linked together in a way that we have to collaborate mm 
mm-hmm. all of us. The mm-hmm. collective, there is a collective, which is all of us. Okay. Right? It hasn't successfully collaborated sure. yet. Sure. Um, if it doesn't, we've got a big problem. And okay. my guess would be it's a fatal problem in the near term. But we are not wired for it because cooperate to compete works up until there's no one to compete with. Ah. Uh. Right. And so in some sense, we have to level ourselves up. and Hence the need for the chosen people. Well, <laughs> hence the need for us to take all of the, um, the important discoveries mm-hmm. that different populations have made mm-hmm. and pool them. And okay. there's one way in which you could take this as some sort of, uh, um, you know, utopian, okay. uh, all is one kind yeah. of viewpoint. Okay. And what I'm saying is that the difficulty is that the story in mm-hmm. which we all realize, you know, what astronauts typically realize, yeah. they look back at the earth and they sure. have what's called the overview effect, mm-hmm. right? That that experience somehow has to be translated to everybody. Yeah, The discoveries that each population have made that are valuable has to be uh, democratized. Okay. And that we are not wired for that transition, even if we require it, is a daunting challenge. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yes, I was going to say, I don't know if that's possible <laughs> uh, to translate all of the um, sort of discoveries of every community to the entire circle, meaning, the, meaning, to, meaning to say that. You all, we all inherit this, or this is our inheritance. All of us collectively. I don't, I don't know if that's possible. Well, okay. Um, at the risk of pushing this somewhere very <laughs> uncomfortable. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, but um, at the risk of doing that, mm-hmm. can we talk about the uh, predicament of the population of people who arrived in the new world? Um, for the purpose of mm. functioning as slaves. I mean, sure. this is a population that you derive from on both sides of your family. Sure. That population, A, it was many populations mm-hmm. in Africa. Yeah. Um, but that population that assembled here yes. for the purpose of doing the labor yes. of the population with power. Right. It had its culture systematically destroyed. Sure. Right? Not yeah. 100%, yeah. but to a great extent yeah. for the purpose of making enslavement function. Right. Um, that population, therefore, does not have access mm-hmm. to the ancestral sure. the goods. inheritance. Right. It right. Had its language destroyed or right. its languages destroyed right. at its coherent set of cultural traditions largely disrupted. So the point is that population actually has to take on another some – it doesn't have to be one population's package of discoveries, but it has to take on something to replace that which was stolen from it. Oh, that's interesting. Am I wrong about that? I don't – I wouldn't necessarily think about it in this – in these terms Um, because – if certain elements of culture are universal and thus can be found in every culture, then technically one could guess that the things that 
that the things that we are taking from other cultures were also part of our culture at some point, even before it was destroyed. Um, well, let me, let me come at that uh, biologically and just okay. my best guess. Okay. Um, people are very similar yes. in their capacity to discover. And yes. what we see, you know, if you take a guns, germs, and steel view of history, which I very definitely do, mm-hmm. uh, what you basically see is that human beings inherited very uneven pieces of turf. Okay. And that those very uneven pieces of turf cause some populations to move faster sure. and some populations to move slower based on, for example, how many domesticable animals are available to them. Sure. So there was a concentration of domesticable animals above, uh, you know, the size of a – a rabbit, mm-hmm. um, you know, in Asia, right. and there was a deficit of them in the New World, okay. for example. Uh, so that is to say, the ones that exist in the New World now right. were transported from Asia and, and uh, via Europe, right. primarily. But, uh, but people are basically people will discover what there is to discover. Sure. The rates at which they discover these things are heavily dependent on idiosyncrasies sure. of the environment that they inherit just by virtue of where they are on earth. Sure. And so I don't think there is any reason to imagine that A, many of these things were discovered in various places in the earth mm-hmm. or across the earth and that in places where they hadn't been discovered yet, they would be. Right. You know, We can see in Mesoamerica, for example, um, a highly sophisticated culture mm-hmm. that was a few hundred years behind Europeans in terms oh, wow. of metallurgy, okay. right? Maybe it was a thousand years behind, but it yeah. wasn't yeah. vast distance in, in historical context. Yeah. And the point is, well, that created a military disadvantage that was absolutely unbeatable when sure. Europeans showed up. But, uh, but my point is, I agree mm-hmm. that populations that have had their culture uh, disrupted, mm-hmm. either had those discoveries in their history or would have come across them soon enough. Sure. Um, but from the point of view of where we all land now, sure. I think the point is, well, we've got libraries. Sure. They're full of these discoveries. Yeah. Why don't we just make sure that a package that contains all of the most useful stuff is given to available. everybody? Yeah. Yes. Made available. I don't. I think that's fine. I think that's a that's a um, it's a different analogy, but I <laughs> I think it's a good solution to. Well, we've sort of meandered from this particular versus the universal to um, who inherit what, or proof that there has to be this uh, approach that says that everyone would have access to the the gifts that all communities or all ancient peoples have created or discovered. Because if you run into a situation like people's history being wiped out, they will need to take from other people's histories or other people's accomplishments and also be able to uh, call it their own. But I think they're able to call it their own because they're human beings, not because of where they come from or because of even the even the origin story. I think the, the fact that the human being, that we are human beings, transcends all of that. And so that is why, uh, for example, African-Americans have a, a right to that heritage. Not because, not because it's useful, but because it is uh, – and this is – I can't prove this, but because it is – because it's a metaphysical statement. But it is objectively the case that what transcends all of that is the dignity of the human person. 
Uh, yeah, I think, in <laughs> fact, well, I think these are two facets of the same coin. And okay. I, I agree that if we take— But, but yep. if, we, if we acknowledge the dignity of the human person and, like, what that entails, we also have to recognize that in order to thrive, I think, human beings need stories. And not stories just of the collective, but also stories of the particular. And so— um, you know, so to ask the question, which is a challenging question, it's a very good question, why can't the accomplishments, for example, of the Jewish people be the collective accomplishments of all of humanity, right? As opposed to seeing this as very specific thing, very particular thing, in a uh, sense. Because not, Galileo's accomplishments are not seen as the Italian people's accomplishments. Right. Right? So there's this difference there. But I, I don't necessarily think that there's anything wrong with the difference. Oh, I don't think there's anything wrong with the difference. And I'm not looking to sanitize or neutralize the stories mm -hmm. at all. It, it's not even really the accomplishments, uh, you know. Well, I guess accomplishments is maybe uh, too vague. It's the tools. Mm -hmm. It's the tools that I see as mm -hmm. absolutely vital that we democratize. Okay. Everybody needs access to those tools. And to the extent that our cooperate to compete modality mm -hmm. has brought us to this place. It has also caused us to wield tools and to deny them to others. Sure. That that's, that's the key strategy. Sure. Is I'm, I'm going to discover a tool. I'm going to wield it to benefit me and whatever I identify as self. Sure. Right? And I'm going to deny it to those with whom I am competing. It's an interesting uh, in light. It's an interesting notion in light of the fact that some intersectionalists reject the Enlightenment. I yes, because it's a reverse thing. Because you would think that many people in who who hold this political ideology believe that they do so in the name of minority groups. But what you're saying is, if you reject these tools, which are the inheritance of all of humanity, then you're doing something that's actually uh, fundamentally undemocratic. You're like reversing that democratic process. Yes, and it's so self-defeating. Yes, because you're you're only hurting yourself essentially because you're denying yourself access to the tool, which is actually your inheritance as a human being. It's your inheritance, and yeah, this is exactly this is exactly my frustration is that yeah. I have the sense there is really something to the idea that um, some people have been shut out of access to those tools, and instead mm -hmm. of demanding access to those tools, right. they're declaring the tools. Right. Illegitimate and biased, which is not the case. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, that's that's very strange. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is very strange. It's very disheartening. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's sort of – it's jarring given what Heather and I were doing, mm -hmm. trying to pass those tools on to people and taking great pleasure in watching them acquire them right. and wield them with ever more skill. But um, – Surely, though, there has to be a parable that can teach us about this. Like, there has to be a parable where, like, I don't know, the child rejected the tools that the parents tried to give them or something along those lines where yeah. you can sort of, like, sift through and try to predict what's going what's gonna to be the outcome of this new uh, pattern of behavior that we're seeing. I agree. There should be, there should be a well-known <laughs> story, think, but I can't think yeah, of what can't it would think be. Yeah, what it would be. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, why am I blanking on the uh, author of the idea that the master's house cannot be disassembled with the master's tools? Oh, I don't know that one. You don't know that one. Okay. I find this a very I, – I see it periodically 
the master's house cannot be disassembled with the master's tools because the master built it. And so I, I have to say, <laughs> this is an idea that people uh, wield mm-hmm. and I can't make sense of it. I can, it sort of sounds right until you think about the implications. And my feeling is, well, I just don't know what it means. Well, it means that, you know, I mean, it's obviously a reference to, um, to slavery, you know, okay. the master sure. has tools, and if you want to dismantle slavery, you can't do it with the tools oh. that belong to the master. But oh, that's feeling, absurd! It's absurd. That's absurd. It's not only that's absurd, fundamentally absurd. It's Baldwin almost, would have ripped that apart. <laughs> it's the opposite of the. <laughs> that's truth, absurd, right? That is like the literal. Wow, I hadn't heard of that. One Nobody's before. got better tools than the master, right? Go right. in the master's that's, shed. The master has the finest tools in town. If that's you were going to use tools to dismantle the master's house, those would be the ones. That is absolutely ridiculous. Who yeah. came up with this? I can't. Or I can't <laughs> believe I'm blanking on it. I, I used to know it like the back of my hand, but not that I know the back of my hand very well. I've never understood that expression. That's, but huh? Yeah. I will have to think through the. I'm sure there are more implications for this statement because that's just. I mean, first of all, the of the the audacity to assume that. See, this is the point. This is the problem that I have. This is the thing that frustrates me. What is what is at the essence, um, or what connects the master and the slave in this uh, paradigm that we are we are uh, talking about? Because in the book "As a Man Liveth," the author says, "Be neither a master nor a slave." Mm-hmm. And in the conversation with Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin in the seventies, Nikki Giovanni says there are only two people that are hated the worst in this world, and that is the master and the slave. So almost like trying to promote this rejection of that paradigm um, as a starting point. But anyway, even if we were to take that paradigm as a starting point, it's like what is um, what is at the base of these two categories is the human being. And so this idea, it's like it's so antithetical to – it's so fundamentally untrue because, because uh, on, a, on a sort of – I don't know how to put this. On a deeper level uh, – both of you are human beings, so both of you can exhibit certain qualities and certain behaviors that are either destructive or productive or, or moral or immoral, right? So this idea that like um, that one cannot even – this goes back to the beginning of our conversation – that one can't find the uh, commonality or the common humanness between these two categories, um, which would make a person realize that that statement is silly, right, um, is very dehumanizing. Actually, because it says that the essence of what you are are these categories, not the human being underneath. Because if it's the human being underneath, then the slave could take those same tools and make something else, right? The, the, the point is not the tools. It's the being that's using the tools. And so this saying is ridiculous because it takes the autonomy away from the human being, um, which is ironic because um, the, the categories are master and slave. But this person has not come with the ca- up with the category of a free person. Or a person who is free. Yeah. I, the person who is free does not fall into either of those categories. I, I 100% right? I, so. I 100% agree with this. And the question, it's so heartbreaking <laughs> because yeah. I, I have the sense that, you know, let's take your example from the beginning of the conversation. The okay. two people who find themselves sure. uh, moving together well on a dance floor. Sure. They come to have some deep connection that isn't founded on the content of their 
conscious beliefs. Right. Okay. And then their conscious beliefs emerge in the conversation afterwards. Sure. Right. Um, that experience reveals something about the very point you're making about the human being mm-hmm. versus the status. Right. Right. I have the sense that this just isn't that hard and we're still not going to succeed at it. What do you mean it's not that hard? That, <laughs> you know, when when I was facing the protesters who became rioters mm-hmm. at Evergreen, mm-hmm. I kept having the sense that these people had, you know, let's put the bad actors aside. There were some bad actors, sure. a few of them. But then there were a lot of people who were saying stuff like the master's okay. yeah, yeah, house yeah. can't be disassembled with the yeah. master's tools. And I had the sense of, you know what these guys need? They need a really good college course that takes yeah. months, that yes. runs you through these I things. I my startup. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the tragedy yes. of a college coming apart yeah. over the fact that what the people who were tearing it apart needed was college. Right. Was like, oh, oh my that's God, like, we've got a college here. Can't yeah. can we not just oh, simply use these buildings and the things that you're saying? Let's take the things that you're saying yeah. and let's start there. Yeah. Okay. Let's just start there. We'll yeah. take them as a premise and then yeah. we'll see how well that premise stands up. Right. This is not that hard. Right. Right. But it was impossible. Okay. And so I guess maybe that's what, what I'm saying. getting at is okay. that I'm a little bit heartbroken okay. that something that where the parameters slightly changed. Yeah. It's not that hard. Yeah. becomes impossible. So what parameters needs, would need to change in order for it to – Well, you know, you mentioned something about conservatives and self-government, I think, was mm-hmm. the term that you used. There is a way in which, yes, there is a problem with the structures of authority. Mm-hmm. People are sick and tired of being told uh, that their system functions and if they just – Mm-hmm. keep their head down and do their work, they will end up in a decent place because they can see that that's not inherently true. Sure. Right? So their frustration makes sense. But the allergic reaction to all structures, mm-hmm. right, as if it is the fact of the structures mm-hmm. that is oppressing, mm-hmm. that's wrong. Right. And so I guess my point is I'm very upset at the state of the – university system. I think the okay. university system has abdicated responsibility for teaching and it's taken up some other kinds of jobs in order mm-hmm. to pay the rent. But its failure to teach has resulted in a lot of people who haven't learned right. and having not learned, they aren't in a position to evaluate the quality of what they're asserting mm. the system should look like. And so they're saying patently absurd things about mm-hmm. you know what the rules of society ought to be. And, you know, we can't afford to try out their experiment, right? right? It will be an absolute disaster. Right. So this has to be taught in the abstract rather than oh, trying it. Okay. So anyway, I guess my point is, look, I don't think – I think a lot of college professors don't do a lot of teaching. And it isn't just college professors. Yeah. It's teachers. That's crazy. It's to crazy. Think of, to think about, to imagine. Yeah. But what if – what if it all depends mm-hmm. on getting people to calm down, <laughs> to step back and be systematic? Yeah. Okay. What, what are you claiming? Yeah. And then let's play it through. 
Well, in order to get my feeling is that the reason why it's hard is because the, in order to get a student to be able to do that, that student has to identify with that process. And so, and this is where identity in a more serious context can be discussed. So like, how's, what is this person's sense of self in the world? Uh, how does this person conceive of him or herself? Uh, does this person know themselves really? Um, and having known oneself is now, now being able to navigate the outside world. And specifically in reference to the college campus for the purposes of this conversation. So it, it maybe a person is, um, has to be raised in such a way or nurtured in such a way that they would want to, or that they would be more likely to respond to that process. Okay. So I don't know. This is perfect. Actually. I was okay. thinking about this, uh, this morning okay. and preparing to talk to you about it. Okay. It's a, question I have about whether or not by theory of enchantment mm -hmm. you mean something that is analogous to an idea that uh, motivated um, my teaching, something I use to describe my own teaching to myself. Okay. You have to give me a little leeway. Okay. The word seduction yeah. has a bad connotation. It's not inherently sure. bad, but it has a sexual connotation that doesn't sure. belong in this conversation. Sure. But I... I felt when I was involved in teaching that good teaching involved a kind of intellectual seduction. Okay. And what I mean by that is the way to get somebody to learn is not to take true things or things you think are true and mm -hmm. put them on the board and make them read them and right. stuff like that. It doesn't work. Sure. What does work is showing them here is something that you could have. Right. And here is why you want it. Right. And here is the path to get it. Sure. And it's not necessarily going to be simple, but the point is you're doing it for you. Right. You're doing it so that at the end of this process, you have a tool to wield that will serve you for the rest of your life. Yes. Right? And if done well, mm -hmm. right, if done in a way, you know, you do have to cultivate the trust of the people that you are teaching. Right. Right? They really... Because if you just walk in there and you say that, right. they won't believe you. Right. Right? They're too jaded. But right. if you allow them to see your humanity, mm -hmm. which goes to what you were saying before, mm -hmm. if you allow them to see your humanity, you show them that you are dealing with them straightforwardly. Yeah. And then you place the thing on offer. In my case, it was an evolutionary toolkit that allows you to understand what is otherwise a very confusing predicament that you've okay. landed in as a human being. Okay. That you will be more in control mm -hmm. of your life, right? Yeah. You want to understand your love life and not be so confused by it? Yeah. Just so happens that love evolved in the context of evolution mm -hmm. and that that's why it's so confusing. Mm. And there's a map. Yeah. Do you want it? You know, that thing, yeah. right? So anyway theory of enchantment. I guess I'm wondering whether mm -hmm. or not your use of enchantment mm -hmm. and my use of seduction mm -hmm. are, are these synonyms or close or do you mean something else? I think that it? they are close. I don't think they're synonyms. Um, I think that they are certainly related to each other. Um, 
enchantment. So I, I picked the word enchantment because at the time I was doing this research paper that ended up being the catalyst for the startup. And I was reading a book by Guy Kawasaki, the former marketing director of Apple, who wrote a book called Enchantment. And enchantment, he defines it as like the process by which you delight someone with a idea or whether it's a person or a thing, whatever, you're delighting them. They feel fundamentally delighted. And I think that that's similar to sort of like here is this map. Do you want it? That's sort of like delighting them in a way. Um, but I think the difference between the two is that, well, I guess it's not really. One of the differences that comes to mind is that in your scenario, the delight comes in the fact that the person is going out on an adventure to try to go obtain a thing, right? That's where the delight comes from. Whereas in my curriculum, the delight comes from simply recognizing uh, yourself and certain truths about the world in things that you did not know contained or s could resonate with you on that level. So this, this is great. This is better than I, I had. Okay. Um, it sounds to me like the distinction is one between delight mm -hmm. and entice. Yeah. So what I'm talking about is entice. Yeah, I'm talking about delight. Yeah. Yeah. And I like it. Both of these are yeah. these are neighboring tools. Yeah. And that's um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it goes to something that I also came to believe. Mm -hmm. I don't know when it actually dawned on me consciously, but by the by the end of my teaching career, I had come to believe that most of the obstacle to students acquiring a deep understanding of things was not about content. It okay. was about motivation. Okay. Their motivation or the teacher's motivation? Well, the teacher's motivation sort of sets the course. Sure. If the teacher's motivation is screwed up, sure. it's very hard sure. even if the students are well motivated for it to go anywhere positive. But in general, students are badly wired to <laughs> acquire useful stuff. Okay. For one thing, even the really good students yeah. tend to be wired to please the authority figure at the front of the room. And I so see. they – end up inadvertently effectively gaming the system because okay. they get good at getting a pat on the head from the teacher. Right. And I know from experience, somebody who gets really good at that game, mm -hmm. right? They, they're getting straight A's. But what they've learned is how to please that person. And right. one of two things happens to them when they graduate. Either that person at the front of the room gets replaced by a boss, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. now they've become a cog mm -hmm. because what they've gotten right. good at is pleasing somebody right. who has authority over right. them or they can't figure out what to do right. because the person at the front of the room was the source of their motivation. Right. Okay. Right. And so yeah. in some sense you have to – if I run into a student who's very capable mm -hmm. but is not internally motivated, mm -hmm. that becomes my focus because okay. my point is, look, you got a hazard built into you. You've got everything sure. you need to succeed sure. but you've got a hazard built into you which is that until you take over your own – ability to direct your ship, you're either going to belong to somebody else or you're going to be adrift. Sure. Um, so anyway, motivation is the key. So anyway, you could do this with delight and you can do this with entice. They yeah. both work because they the both play on the motivation. But the but – the, oh, I see. Does it – is it affected by the fact that it's the authoritarian saying here's the roadmap. You might want to try to follow it. Oh, that's a really interesting Meaning question. presumably anyone should be able to uh, replace the role of the authoritarian and say it. And if it's powerful, if it's enticing enough, then the person will do it regardless of who the authoritarian saying it, saying to do it is. I really like that. 
Yeah. I think it uh, – so we've been playing with a model where you've got bad actors who have taken advantage of a set of stories and rules that is mm. essentially structured to be gamed. Uh. But what you're saying goes a step beyond that, I think, um, and that in effect – we have predisposed people mm -hmm. to follow bad leaders mm. by telling them that the key thing to do is to make somebody with power happy. Sure. That fits for me. Actually, sure. I do think that that is a part of what's going on. But but there are competing stories though that we've – because we, we also tell other stories culturally. Yes, but the – I think the thing that I find most frightening about the intersectional story mm – -hmm is that it offers – people are, you know, especially young people tend to be looking for the equivalent of a get-rich-quick scheme, okay. some rapid way that they can get to the place where they don't have to worry about money and sure. any of the other difficult things to acquire in life. And so somebody who's selling a story in which, hey, guess what? You can find out where you are in a magical pecking order. Right. Mm -hmm. Here's the intersectional map. Right. Right. You're on it somewhere. Right. Find yourself. Right. Right. Now what we're gonna do, the intersectional map defines a future in which we're gonna turn the tables. Right. Right. And so the people who were way ahead, they're gonna be way behind because they don't have any intersectional points at all. Right. Right. And so the fact is this is not likely to be very compelling to people with marginal sure. intersectional credentials. But there are a whole lot of people who have multiple axes on which they will see sure. themselves as oppressed and the point is, well, huh, if I sign up for this vision, sure. maybe it's next week that I'm in a better position. So there has to be just an alternative story that can compete with that framework, an alternative framework rather than story. But yeah, because intersectionality is fundamentally a story, as you just said. So there has to be another story that can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with that story. But I think, I think you were there earlier in this conversation. Okay. And I think the point is – Oh, with the master and the slave? Because uh, I would argue that's a story. No. That, that's a good one and it's relevant. Yeah. But um, with the individual and collective. Oh, oh. Okay. Because the yeah. point is that story, yeah. that intersectional story yeah. is entirely collective. Right. Right? Right. And that this is, you know, lots of people who have looked at this movement and – been frightened by it, have yeah. recognized that it involves an almost total de-individuation. Right. Right. Even the language, which I understand its origin, but okay. black and brown bodies. Sure. That's yeah. not a like – It's very new. It's very new, re relatively recent. And it has Like almost, I wasn't hearing that in the 90s personally. Yeah. I wasn't either. I mean <laughs> I think it comes from Ta-Nehisi Coates, right? Um, that I would make so. sense. I, that I, that I would make so. sense. Okay. And I understand it. I mean yeah. in fact, in fact, I even think – his point, yeah. if I understand it, is right. Yeah. Right. His point, if I understand his point correctly, his point is in order to oppress, ultimately, mm -hmm. it comes down to control over somebody's body. Sure. Right? Sure. That's how you oppress somebody. Well, hmm. Baldwin might be a little bit meta. And a couple of quotes from I'm um, this is I can't believe I'm doing this, but a couple of quotes from um um what's the name of that movie? The Great Debaters. Wow. Okay. So The Great Debaters is based on a true story. Denzel Washington plays this uh, coach who coaches debaters. It's a, it's during racial segregation. It's in the South. Uh, 
the team ends up competing in Harvard and winning the entire like year. That's what this movie is about. But this is incredible scene where there's this one guy who's really smart, really talented, but also has um, problems with authoritarian figures and just lashing up because everything that was done to him. And so Denzel Washington says to him in this monologue, um, he explains to him how during slavery there was the development of Willie Lynchism, which led to what we now know as lynchings, uh, where the purpose was to brutally, brutally destroy the black and brown body, right? Physically mm. destroy, okay. right? So, so to Tanasi Kotz's point, that was the goal. Um, and he says that the goal was to uh, keep them in line, right? So that they would work um, without questioning, without uh, protesting um and so in that sense gave the body back and but they took the mind right so denzel washington says that was the goal T keep the body take the mind and he says i am and every professor on this campus are here to help you take back uh keep or or get back and keep your righteous mind because obviously you have lost it now i tell that story because not because what Coates is saying isn't right i understand the essence of what he's saying but there has been this deeper thread i think within a lot of the ideas that have uh pulsated through the civil rights movement and the harlem renaissance movement which is that oppression is fundamentally about the spirit about the mind and it's not yes it's about the body but it's not simply about the body and so Coates's mistake is in reducing the human being to the body when in fact there was this belief in a transcendent um that the ultimate value lay in the mind and in human consciousness now that's a bit of a side note but i think it's relevant no, no. because it Perfect. it challenges that framework it doesn't it's not to say that the framework isn't correct um, but it isn't the deepest truth. Yes. The framework has a piece of the truth. Right. It isn't the truth. It's not right. synonymous with it. Yes. Okay. So this is great. So the body ends up being oppressed. Yes. It's not the entire point. The intersectional movement de-individuates. It's yes. about the individual. They allowed the mind to be taken. They, they did. <laughs> That's the, the irony. They, they, they gave away the enlightenment and they gave away the mind. Right. Which is so, to give away the mind. Which is to give away the mind. Right. And the stories that they tell are these mind-numbing stories where achievements of an individual don't even exist. They're a myth of white supremacy or something. Right. Right? Okay. So your question then mm -hmm. is they've got a story, mm -hmm. which is there's a map. You can find yourself on it. Yeah. And it's going to involve a reversal of oppression. Sure. And so – how are you going to be in a world where we've reversed depression? How are you going to be? You're probably going to be better off than you are. So this is a good story. Follow us. Sure. Right. Your question is what's the alternative story? Right. The alternative story I believe is actually – and I have to say this is a story I have heard from uh, – I've heard it from black conservatives okay. very regularly. Okay. Right. And it, it has caught my attention because okay. – as I got in trouble for saying a little bit on Joe Rogan's program, mm -hmm. I didn't initially understand why there were black conservatives. Okay. It seemed to me uh, hard to imagine and as I've encountered more and more of them, I've come to understand what the phenomenon is and its okay. deep meaning, which I respect greatly. Okay. But the, uh, the point is the empowerment mm -hmm. of the individual, mm -hmm. right, is sure. the alternative story. Sure. You can entice, right? right? 
Right. Uh, you can enchant. Right. These are both mechanisms. But the point is, do you want a tool that will make you more powerful? Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you about the Enlightenment, right? The okay. Enlightenment is – it's not the only tool, but it's a major tool in that toolkit of becoming more powerful and having more control over your life. Now, here is the thing that I think when I talk to black conservatives mm-hmm. and I hear them talking about personal responsibility, mm-hmm. Right. I think I know why this has become such a focus and it is because the ability to change the fate of the collective, Mm -hmm. it's not great. Right. Right. It's very hard to change the fate of a population. On the other hand, a person who decides to take charge of their future can have a tremendous impact on how far they get and how powerful they end up. Sure. So the point is preaching – personal responsibility to people actually works, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily change the net outcome. Right. Right? Right. It may be that you make yourself more powerful and somebody else loses, you know, somebody right. whose name you don't know. Right. Right. So the question then is, as always, how do you find the correct fraction? Mm-hmm. Right? The intersectional story isn't totally wrong. Mm-hmm. There is, you know, there are patterns mm-hmm. of self-reinforcement where yes. the distribution of power and well-being and wealth self-reinforce. Sure. Such a pattern doesn't even need to think about race. Sure. To the extent that things weren't re- equally distributed to begin with, right. all you need is a pattern that reinforces right. the existing distribution and right. that will continue indefinitely. Right. So the question is, how do you take the part of the story – that is legitimate, which is, yeah, we do have a chronic problem, sure. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it does require that it be addressed. Sure. On the other hand, you as an individual would be a, a fool mm-hmm. to surrender your mind, as you say, right. to this process, right. right? That's the place where you have the greatest chance of, right. you know, beating the odds. Right. Um, and, you know, the mixture of those two messages is – right what I think the universal message would be, the recognition of the collective problem and the individual problem. Okay. Do you find that is present in anything, Um, in any story? I find that it is present in individuals and tiny groups. Okay. Tiny groups. Which brings us back to Judaism. (laughs) Okay. There we go. It could be argued that Judaism is the story. And I don't mean like the religion halakhically. I mean the basic story of of, of people enslaved in Egypt gone to the promised land. That basic story has been – it's no coincidence I think that that basic story has been sort of repurposed in different uh, mediums and contemporary forms because it has both the – individual and the collective element in it, built within it. And perhaps that's why people gravitate toward it or one of the reasons why people gravitate toward it is because it has that sort of balance to a certain extent. Yeah, I, I like it. And I, you know, there's a, um, there is a deep connection that uh, I'm not sure how far to go with okay. it here, but there's a way in which uh, if you, put aside mm-hmm. Richard Dawkins' mm-hmm. view of the way mimetic cultural sure. transmission works and evolves and you accept what some of us see, which is that these belief structures, mm-hmm. religions, 
are in fact meme complexes that have mm. served populations oh, very powerfully. Of course powerful. they are. Of course they are. <laughs> right. Almost the only person are. who doesn't see it is Richard Dawkins, I think, at this point. But um, but that's a very specific. I don't want to. You know, we don't have to. Of course, they are meme complexes. If by meme you mean what I think you mean by meme, which are repeatable, sort of like yeah, transmittable. Yes. They're, they're, it's heredity outside of the genome. And, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but the concept of meme is Richard Dawkins' concept. Yes, I knew that. Right. I knew that. But when I met with him in October, it was clear that he views memetic evolution as yeah. a kind of sidelight. What does that mean? It's a minor fact. Oh. Rather than the, thing the central story for yeah. human beings and the yeah. way what we What does he evolve. think is the central story? I think it's he thinks genes, and you know, uh, there's a way in which we can steel man Dawkins' argument. point. Right. I do think, right. you know, I can explore this in greater depth somewhere else. I sure. do think the genes are in control. Sure, right? They are. The, well, I don't know what that means, but it means that the genes create a mind okay, which sure. memes can be transmitted. They sure. are in charge in sure. a way that is most unfortunate. Sure, but uh, <laughs> sure. But the point is, yes, the magic of humans yeah. is the the meme right. and so, the meme so, complex. Right. So if you take the meme complex of of this the Jewish story, for example, you can find it in uh, – it just repeats itself in let's take something contemporary. Oh, The Lion King, for example. Right. Or, you know, um, uh, you know there's a reason why Bob Marley gravitated toward – the taking that story as a backdrop for music and sort of recreating it in, oh, absolutely. in a certain way, right? And of course, even in the Black Experience, how that sort of overlays onto as a as a meta narrative, right? And, and, and which is a way to understand oneself if you can point back to a particular. Oh, this is the argument, by the way, for the particular of that story. Um, uh, the particular particularness of the Jewish story makes it such that the the Black collective in America, uh, I don't know how thousands of years later, can look back at that story and take that story and derive meaning from it. Um, and that is a very particular story, right? Without that particular story, uh, it could have there could have been another future. I don't know, but but that is very particular as opposed to universal, right? It is not the co- that story is not the collective story of everyone. It's a very particular story, but that because of its particularness, it was able to be taken and overlaid by people who also went through slavery. Right. And so now they understand. Now they can they can relate to that in a deeper le- on a deeper level and create, you know, different forms of meaning. And of course, if you look at what the black I would say black people did with gospel uh, and music in general, but gospel in particular, especially songs that were that preceded gospel that were sung during slavery that took the language and the liturgy of the Jewish story and sort of incorporated it into um, what slaves at that time were going through as a means to overcome, you know, the situation. I think that's an example of how something can still be particular but still uh, affect in a positive way the whole of humanity. Oh, it's – Absolutely beautiful, and I love the Bob Marley example. Yeah. Now I hope I'm not going to get out of my depth here, but <laughs> okay. um, there's a way in yeah. which Bob Marley plays uh, very much on some of the Jewish part of the story, mm-hmm. very much on some of the Christian part of the story. Sure. And there is a way in which Bob Marley 
corrects mm. a piece of the Christian story that mm. I actually That's interesting. regard as malware. Okay, how does Malware to keep oppressed people oppressed. Right. Um, the song Get Up, Stand Up. Sure. Right? Yeah. Most people think great God will come from the sky. Take right. Take away everything and make everybody feel high. Right. But if you know what life is worth, you will look for yours on earth. Right. Now you've seen the light. Stand up for your rights. Right. This... That is a that is a that does challenge a certain aspect of Christianity. It absolutely challenges a certain aspect yeah. of Christianity, and it to me it yeah. leans towards the Jewish version. It of does. The story. It does because Judaism isn't so overly fixated with the afterlife. Exactly, it's, it's fixated on the present. Exactly, and like doing mitzvahs now to bring in the pre- yes. Right. At the same time, however, yes, I will. I will uh, put a vote for this aspect of Christianity. The fact of. Um, the idea of the afterlife yep. within Christianity made it possible for black people to think to themselves while they were undergoing oppression that there is a um, that they it, there is a place outside of here, mm-hmm. right? There is a place beyond this realm that I am seeing and experiencing with my physical body, right? It. it the belief in the afterlife equips the mind or is a tool for the mind because it makes it, it, it makes you able to sort of um, like withstand some of the blows that are happening in the present because what's important is not the present. What's important is the future. Well, in that way, yeah. does it not mirror Dr. King's invocation of the arc of the moral universe being born, Yeah. Right? Yeah. That same sort of – Right. And it's inevitably going to come. Right. It's inevitably going to come. But it is long. So anyway, to go back to the meme complex uh, idea, Mm -hmm. the thing that I – the thing about memes Mm -hmm. and meme complexes Mm -hmm. is that they enjoy the ability to recombine. It's very much analogous to what happens with genes. Okay. Right? With two people mate. They bring the genes together. You get some new combination. There is a way in which – Christians, mm-hmm. if we take a phylogenetic view mm-hmm. of these populations, mm-hmm. the Christians are in effect a species of Jews. Jews okay. are effectively the ancestral okay, population yeah. Yeah, 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 and a that. much larger population has emerged from it, yes. right? It dwarfs the Jewish population. But so what I would say is um, Christians – are they are phylogenetically Jewish? Okay. Modern Jews are in part culturally Christian. Okay. They have actually adopted things from the New Testament that aren't okay. in the Old Testament and okay. included them in their meme complex. So, for example, monogamy. Mm. Right. So, mm. what yes, you get, and you know, you can you can sort of say, well, Bob Marley mm-hmm. is playing with the mixture of, of the beliefs, yeah. right? He's yeah. playing with the mixture of beliefs and to a particular population, a right. particularly oppressed population right. that needed music right. to sort of re-script where right. they were and get them to look past the Christian obligation right. to just simply endure, right? Right. right. Um, so Bob Marley is like somebody, he's like a, a, a meme mixer. Okay. In order to generate yeah. a more powerful story in, yeah. in your sense of it. Um, this is a natural process. Right. It has to happen 
you know, it happens when people combine ideas and they jettison these and sure. they adopt those and they mix them and bring them in. And sure. So anyway, there is a very powerful story to be understood if we figure out how these massive meme complexes mm -hmm. do evolve, mm -hmm. in what way it's similar to genes, in which ways it is dissimilar, in mm -hmm. what way it is subservient to genes, which mm. is going to be a very important part of the story. Mm. Uh, but in any case, if we were to start looking at the world through that lens, I believe we would have a great deal of power to understand patterns of history that are otherwise just simply anomalous. Okay. Because, the, because you will find common story or which would be effectively a meme. Right, because it will it will stop being difficult, you know. If the idea is, well, are you Christian or are you Jewish? Right, right, right. right. That's not a really good question. Right, exactly. Right? It's yeah. like saying, yeah. you know, is that a monkey or is it a primate? Yeah. It's both. Right. Right? Yeah. You know, not every primate is a monkey, but right. every monkey is a primate. Right. So to the extent that Christianity is a very successful successful version of Judaism, mm -hmm. that's an important fact. Sure. Right? It says something about the way these two things will interrelate. And to the extent that an ancestral population can embrace discoveries of a descendant population sure. that work sure. or that work in here and didn't work where the ancestors came from – that's a that's a feature, not a bug. Okay, it begs the question: uh, How Bob Marley then, or why Bob Marley became so popular? Given what we just, given how you just described what it was he was actually doing, I think you answered it earlier. Okay, um, and I think your point about the way pop culture mm -hmm. interfaces with these um, ancient resonant threads mm -hmm. that this is basically right. Quest. Yes, you've got lots of people playing with. They say things, they get a positive reaction, sure. they explore those things further. Sure. Bob Marley was a particularly – he was a genius right. who explored a particular quadrant that was very rich. Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't abandon mm -hmm. the traditions of the past, but it looked skeptically at part of it. It embraced other parts. Mm -hmm. It's musically so compelling for yeah. reasons that you would know far more as a musician sure. than I could tell you. But there's a way in which um, reggae is uh, – I don't know what to say. It's very it's very basic. It reaches something yes, very deep. Yes, it's very deep. tribal. Yeah. It's very in, – in the sense that it's – I mean I think a lot of music that's like African or like the Caribbean, like from the African diaspora is like that. It has that effect. It tends to have that effect on many people. But there are – it's not just African because there – I found that there are elements of African music that can be found in like Irish and Scottish music as well. And you sort of saw the mixture of those um, musical origins in America to create American music anyway. Um, but yeah, there – so all of these – this type of music that I'm thinking about, whether it's from Ireland or whether it's from Ghana, it's like very much uh, – Reminds you of like rootedness, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that's why ultimately Marley was as popular because as he was because he was speaking to something that was fundamentally true um, and whether – it doesn't have to mean true in the, in the sense that Sam Harris means when he says true, right? Yep. But um, it, it's a different kind of meaning but um, – Something for for whatever reason or another, fu fundamentally, human beings are wired to resonate with, right, and are wired to respond to, and perhaps we don't know the why of that story, of you know why that is, what it is, and why that is how we are wired, but it is in fact how we are wired. 
So that's interesting to say the least. It is interesting (laughs) to say the least. Um, All right. I have one final (laughs) question and I don't know how to phrase it. Okay. But it's an idea that's been – Bracing myself. Okay. It's going to take 30 minutes to answer. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe not. I'm I'm hoping – so you're a musician. You play guitar. A little guitar, yeah. A little piano or a keyboard, but yeah. Keyboards and string. Keyboards and string and I sing as well. Okay. Uh, And it's worth noting that the guitar is originally an African instrument. Yes. Yeah. Worth noting. (laughs) Um, Okay. So here's the the rough idea. Okay. Something absolutely magical happened when uh, European – melodic sensibilities met African mm-hmm. rhythmic sensibilities. And okay. that's, that's overly simplified. Sure. But let's just say in the new world, sure. jazz and all of its derivatives, um, it was like a magic combination sure. of things. Yeah. And it unleashed, I don't know, my favorite uh, of these traditions might be uh, Cuban okay. salsa, okay. Um, which is in its own way kind of remained purer longer okay. because of the economic isolation of Cuba as a sure. result of the uh, the embargo. Um, but anyway, something magic happened in the new world as a result of what the slave population brought mm-hmm. and inevitably combined with the slave holding population. Those two musical traditions uh, was mm-hmm. lightning in a bottle when they, when they met. Mm-hmm. But here's the really interesting thing. Those same two traditions have met more than once. Okay. Right. They met in the New World, and you know, I don't know if I'd call it once, but basically, sure. there was some influx of slaves. They brought musical traditions. Sure. Uh, it happened, but it's also now happened again mm-hmm. in Africa. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, what I'm interested in is that I've started listening to some of those African versions of this. So, you know, if these were languages, we would call it a Creole, right? So the Creole is two languages. They meet Mm -hmm. um, people who speak these two languages speak what's called a pidgin, which is not a full language, but their children speak a Creole, which is a full language that that is composed of the two original languages, but it is neither of them. Sure. a musical Creole, mm-hmm. same thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these artists like Habib Kote or Jane I encountered recently, mm-hmm. it's interesting. It reaches me even though it's not, you know, my tradition is a hybrid of the African sure. and the European, right? It, I see what you're it saying. It comes from rock and roll. Right. That's, that's where I, that's where my ear was schooled. Right. But those, I guess my point is every time you take two languages, you make a Creole. But if you take English and French and you mm-hmm. creolize it ten times, mm-hmm. you'll get ten different creoles. Sure. Be, you know, the there same. will be certain things that right. will be analogous, but there will be other things that are just idiosyncratic based mm-hmm. on the particulars of the uh, the hybridization event. Mm-hmm. But I think this has happened musically. And what, it, what I'm getting at is that there's a way in which the African creole between European music and African music mm-hmm. – um, is a second instance of what happened in the new world. Okay. And um, it's very interesting to listen with an ear mm-hmm. that arose in listening to the American or mm-hmm. the new world version of it. Um, it is very interesting to listen right. to the African version of it because basically it's another combination of the same two traditions, right. but it isn't the same combination. Right. And so it has some elements that are very familiar and some that are foreign. Right. And I'm wondering um, 
Have you seen this pattern? Are you? That's interesting. Um, well, I mean, I, there's one album called Ife uh, that everyone should listen to. I just interviewed their band leader for my podcast. Um, anyway, Your podcast. Yes, the Theory of Enchantment. Podcast. The Theory of Enchantment podcast. <laughs> yes, excellent. Um, but uh, this band Ife basically um, is based in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and um, it combines ancient like Yoruban prayers with electronic drums almost so it's a it's it reminds me of what you're talking about and it's definitely contained elements contains elements of the old but the combination is what makes it new the type of combination that it is is what makes it new right because it's the same things but it's not combined in the same way um, because things have changed obviously so and that has created a specific um like new type of music that I've never heard before. But I don't know if I've noticed that it's common. It could be, it could be that I'm not uh, exposed to a lot of that type of music specifically, or it could just be that I listen to a lot of old music. So I'm just listening to a lot of the older stuff that still like speaks to me. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen it, but I, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, yeah. What's the name of the album? Ife, I-F-E. I-F-E. All right, cool. They're awesome. definitely going They're the to. best band I've heard in the past probably 10 years. Wow. Yeah. That sounds pretty good. I'm definitely going to uh, yeah. YouTube that. Check it out. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, all right. Final question. Are you, uh, are you hopeful? Am I hopeful? Yeah. I mean, I, I am hopeful because I do believe that certain things are inevitable. <laughs> and, I, and I know for – it's not just like the sort of, of course, it's long, it's arduous, you know, this – this arc that we've been talking about but you know what is also consistent is the hero's arc and the hero's journey which is a certain type of archetypal story pattern that is found in a lot of stories that we tell ourselves and because it's found in so many stories i am convinced that like more or less that's the story that's going to be able to um, empower individuals with a healthy balance for the collective. It's a story we've been telling ourselves all along. It may it may be that we have to present it in a new way, similar to this new Creole that's created in Africa, right? But it will contain the same elements, um, and we will recognize the element, those elements, which is precisely why we will buy the story. Um, and it's true that the story of, like, do this selfishly so you can gain power is also a very compelling story, but it doesn't have... a it doesn't have redemption. There's no redemption in that story. And I think that's, that's the difference. That's like the thing that separates the boys from the men. <laughs> it does not have redemption in it. I really like this idea. And I do think that there, it's too simple to say that the, uh, the hero archetype mm-hmm. story keeps being retold, which I sometimes hear people say, I did okay. not hear you say that. Okay. Um, I think there is, a manner in which the hero archetype story has to be reinvented mm. for each generation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings yeah. is a great story, but it's not, it's not modern. Sure. It's not, it's not up to date enough. Sure. Right? It needed to be redone. And I, I hope we do find that story for our cohort we're not of the same generation, but you and I are sure. seeing the same piece of history at the moment. Yeah. I hope that we figure out the version of that story that causes people to realize um, 
I don't know, that we can dance together. Yeah. Right? That we're really one people and yeah. uh, that the future, in fact, depends on us getting past the uh, the dangerous tribalisms that have led us here. Yes. Well, I hate to use a four-letter word, but the future depends on love. So, yeah. Love. Oh, that's a fine <laughs> four-letter word. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Chloe Valdery, this has been a extreme – A long pleasure. one, no. <laughs> it's been a long one. This is true. <laughs> Um, but anyway, it would have been a shame to cut it short. Uh, I agree. It was all very worthwhile from my perspective. Thank Likewise. you for coming on the Dark Horse podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Um, and uh, people can find you at Theory of Enchantment. Yes, my website is theoryofenchantment.com. Check it out. Shoot me an email. I'm also on Twitter. So C. Valdery. C. Valdery. And you can also follow Theory of Enchantment. Now, Valdery <laughs> spelled not how you might expect it. It's spelled V-A-L-D-A-R-Y. Valdari. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Well, this has been great. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, If you wish to support my work, you can do so on Patreon. And stay tuned. A lot more coming in the weeks uh, to follow. 